We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. We're starting off this season of the podcast by continuing our collaboration with the Asia-Pacific Architecture Festival, otherwise known as APAF. The theme of the festival this year is Cooperate, Co-Design and Coexist. In this episode, we're focusing on the word co-design and some of the spaces being produced when architects collaborate with creatives from various backgrounds to revitalise public space. Our guest in this episode is Millie Catlin of The Projects, based in Melbourne, a creative architecture practice that facilitates the work of creative professionals in the public realm. They have achieved this by making some of the most successful creative spaces in Melbourne, including testing grounds, site works and the quarry. Let's jump in. Well, thank you so much, Millie, for joining us for the Hearing Architecture podcast and for letting us into your amazing space <laughs> to record this. It's quite unique. I guess before we talk about testing ground and you know your amazing work collaborating with artists, do you want to tell us a little bit about where we are and what's what's on the horizon for your work? Yeah, absolutely. So we're currently sitting in the, I guess, the formal lounge of one of the mayors of Brunswick, a house that was built over a hundred. 100 years ago uh, in the centre of Brunswick. The house was built by the former owner of Cornwall Potteries and it's a really kind of odd house. He was really showing off his his brick craft with the, with the exterior. But the house has been kind of bastardised over the past 100 or so years. It's been added to and pulled apart and, and there's currently kind of like strange furniture floating around in here. And yeah, it's an interesting, interesting building and it's in the middle of a, a site that Moreland Council owned, uh, purchased about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And big plans are afoot for this site after us operating it here for five years for Moreland Council in what we call this kind of transitional phase where Mm. it's kind of, I guess, I like to think about it like long range community consultation. So the way it's been used over the past five years is really informing its future. And that is essentially a community space that is really focused on the creative industries and and providing production space and work and development space for our creative communities and Brunswick locals as well, community groups. So Kennedy Nolan, we've got the dream team, Kennedy Nolan, (laughs) Open Work and Finding Infinity. uh, Amazing. One attender to design the entire site and they've brought some really, really wonderful ideas to the site, thinking about it like a campus. So we've kind of got this collection of buildings and this beautiful kind of urban realm that stitches these these various buildings together. I could talk about it forever, but I will be quiet. <laughs> that's that's totally fine. That's what we want. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, it's, but, yeah it's interesting. Yeah. No, it's great. And it's going to be, yeah. Really great. Just, I guess I am an architect and however, sort of been doing this work around provisioning creative spaces and what I like to call creative infrastructure. But what's been really joyful about this whole process and, and really, really wonderful to be involved in is being involved in the design development phase of this project. Mm. So all too often an operator is brought in once a building is complete. And they're kind of, you know, trying to do something with it once it's all designed and finished and commissioned. But mm-hmm. working really collaboratively with Moreland Council and the places team there mm-hmm. and working with the architects and their 
their team of consultants throughout this process and really kind of, I guess, bringing our knowledge of how the site's been used and what the community needs into this project at this stage is, yeah, is, I think it's quite rare. Like we can't find another project where an operator is that involved mm. and it's, yeah, hopefully going to really benefit the community in the long run. Absolutely. And I mean, the process of creating a creative infrastructure, as he called it, I yeah. mean, that's got to be an interesting process in designing spaces that are meant to be adaptable so that they're flexible, but still built for use. How's that process been with the Dream Team so far? Yeah, yeah. So, they are really on board with our ideas around creative infrastructure. Mm. And it's really about a robust architecture and a flexible architecture. And something I think I like to say sort of it gets better with time. It mm. doesn't degrade with time. It actually gets it gets more interesting and it gets more layered with use and through through activity. And they are totally on board with that idea and things that classic example <laughs> is like we don't need ceiling panels, you know, this is yeah, all, right. it's all <laughs> commercial. It's all like the, the QS is kind of running it like, you know, it's a commercial kind of fit out, but we're sort of advocating to remove wall paneling, to remove interior finishes, to remove ceiling tiles, just to kind of strip the buildings right back mm. and allow things to happen to these spaces through the passage of time. And I guess that does, it folds back into this kind of operational model that really is an active operational model. So we are very invested in being on the ground in these sites and carrying keys around our neck and kind of, you know, hosting and caretaking and, and all, all of the kind of myriad of activities that are involved in that. But mm. very much about working with the community and working with the building simultaneously. So the buildings are these kind of active support structures to the activity and they're allowed to change through time and through activity. So, yeah, stripping materials back and allowing the, the rooms and the spaces and the buildings to be quite um, almost unfinished is part of that. Everyone, everyone's on board. It's great. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. So site works where we yeah. are. I mean, it's going to have a, quite a big built component to it. Yes. And... You guys are experts in this sort of creative infrastructure and a lot of that has come from your experience with testing grounds. So, yeah. do you want to tell me a little bit about where did that start? Where did the idea for that start? And I mean, because a lot of people would sort of see that and think, well, it's, it was a big open site. Yeah. There's a few structures there to, yeah. for people to interact with. Yeah. But, you know, what inspired the beginning of that project? The exactly. So, yeah. So, I think it, we, how far do we go back? <laughs> That's right. I was born <laughs> I in a log child. cabin. Yeah. yeah. No. Um, so, I graduated from architecture and was fairly keen from the outset not to go into commercial practice and not to go into residential kind of practice either. I was just sort of not really interested in, in that trajectory. And I had always been really interested in the city and I've always been really interested in, I guess, in civic spaces and public space and I guess citizenry agency within cities. So that's been like this driver. And I met my partner in crime, Joseph Norster, as I was finishing up in architecture. And we just, we were both working office jobs and doing our thing and, you know, paying the rent. And we just started doing stuff together. So that really started, Joe comes from a lighting design background, both in theater and in architectural lighting. And we just started, I guess, doing things, self-initiating small projects. 
that led to starting to do some work with Federation Square and uh, some festivals through the NGV and across Melbourne, uh, Fringe Festivals, up in Sydney, a few different festivals. We started doing light-based installation work. So we built something called a projector bike a long time ago, back in 2010. Mm-hmm. We also did projects with torches. They were all light-based. And there was something about light that was ephemeral. It was interactive. It was easy. It was often battery-powered. So we were just really interested in these mobile technologies that gave us agency and and allowed us to sort of play in public. Mm. And that sort of evolved through work with Federation Square, as I mentioned, and the city of Melbourne. And we got brought into a conversation around this strange vacant site at One City Road behind Mm. the art centre. And it was covered in weeds. It had shade cloth wrapped around it. And it was pretty much out of sight, out of mind for Melbourne. Mm -hmm. I was brought up in this city. I spent my youth in the city. I've known this city inside out for my whole life. And I never even knew this site existed. It was this real sort of strange uncovering when we were first introduced to One City Road. So we were asked to propose put a proposal together for some temporary activation of that site. And this is really post-GFC when mm. there was a real appetite for pop-up and lo-fi activation of spaces that were otherwise suffering pretty badly mm. post-GFC. So we're seeing a really similar thing happening post-COVID now, which is a whole other tangent, which I won't put up. <laughs> but anyway, so we, we got a bit bullshit and we put together a, a proposal for 12 months of activation. And we asked them, we knew there was no budget. We asked them for the caretaker's budget because we knew there was someone being paid to remove graffiti graffiti, pick up rubbish, kill weeds, etc. So we said, okay, and this is with um, Arts Victoria at the time. We said, okay, give us that budget and we will be the caretakers and we will take that responsibility on to open the gates each morning. So we'll not only look after the site, but part of our duty of looking after it is to open the gates and share it with others. Mm. So that's where it all began. Mm. And with the keys came the responsibility to open those gates. And with a very simple website came the capacity to start receiving applications for people to use it for free. And so began our process of not only taking care of the site, but extending that care to those who came to use the site, which were predominantly emerging artists and people that would otherwise not be able to get access to the city to play and to do work through experimentation in the creative fields. So, yeah, and I guess I've always been connected with RMIT through teaching and ever since I graduated. And so there was this kind of natural inclination to bring in the, the university sector through experimentation. And I guess it was shining a light a little bit on the limitations that university campuses often have in that you just can't build things, do stuff, make a mess, bring a hundred students onto site. You know, there's real limitations to classrooms and the facilities that are available on campus. So we became this kind of strange sort of otherworldly campus site where, you know, students could come and do stuff there that really the campus couldn't facilitate. Yeah, fantastic. And so it seems like the brief was for activation with artists and other creatives. Yeah. How did you approach what you put in the space for those creatives and artists to interact with and then also to use as infrastructure for, you know, the more practical things? How did you decide what should come in and what wasn't necessary? Yeah, really great question. So in 2013, which was when the project originally began in its first first phase, let's call it, Mm. 
we liken it to a Trojan horse phase. So we're, the interesting thing about the testing ground site is that it's, it's a triangle site and it basically has three interfaces. It interfaces with South Bank residents who are predominantly retirees or, you know, people who have chosen to live in South Bank to be near the gardens and be near the arts precinct. So there's this sort of the, the towers of South Bank was one interface that we had. The CBD via, I guess, the South Bank of the Yarra and crossing the Yarra into that sort of edge of that city was another point. And then the arts precinct was our other interface. So we were sort of, from the outset, we were always delicately balancing our responsibilities to these different groups. So at the beginning, the sort of this Trojan horse idea was very much about coming in with as low impact as possible. We really didn't have much of a budget to do that first activation. And it was, as I said, very much post-GFC. So that pop-up aesthetic was well understood by the general public and quite unthreatening. And that site's been quite contentious for many years. So doing anything there was going to be a delicate dance. Mm-hmm. So we were a simple setup with timber pallets, some shipping containers, a bar, which really served the arts community quite nicely and, and was like a nice way for people to come in and anchor themselves around sort of understanding what was going on there. And that was expected to have a 12-month life. We sat there and watched. There was some – we built it all ourselves. It was all sort of of a temporary nature. So there were some – shipping containers that became an office and we sort of called that the site office. There were some toilets that we made that were leveraging two years worth of portaloo hire. So we mm-hmm. took the budget for the portaloo hire and built some toilets ourselves. Mm-hmm. And then there was a workshop in another shipping container. So it was very rudimentary and we basically tested the idea for 12 months. Mm-hmm. Arts Victoria responded really positively after 12 months, really saw this kind of uptake in use. And basically we saw that really sort of that little pop-up world we saw that to the end of its life and Mm -hmm. and that really those running that for a couple of years and it essentially being a success in the fact that people were using it things were happening in the arts precinct that weren't happening anywhere else Mm -hmm. the arts precinct as we know is really a cluster of very audience-based facilities as well as VCA, which is of course Mm. education focused, but it's very audience focused. And we were trying to say, Hey, this is a playground for people who want to try stuff and do stuff in the city, in the arts Mm. precinct who otherwise couldn't do this. This would often be the activities that are relegated to studios in Brunswick or, you know, like, Mm. so we were sort of saying there's a place in the arts precinct for experimentation, for emerging artists, for things that might fail beautifully, you know, like whatever, let's just carve out this kind of crazy bit of land and do that there. So the the model worked. We tested it. <laughs> we tested the grounds. We were we were a place where people could come and come and experiment. So Arts Victoria at the time was transitioning to through a change in government to Creative Victoria. Mm. That was a really interesting time because there was this shift in focus, not just from, I guess, this notion of the traditional arts to the full spectrum of the creative industries. So suddenly the fact that we were working with design students from RMIT and, and architecture students and the full spectrum of, I guess, those creative industries were already using testing grounds, mm. wasn't just sort of the traditional idea of an artist that was not our only user. So when with this change in government, the creative sector was really much more understood as part of the arts precinct. So there was this shift from the, I guess, a really a narrower sort of arts industry focus mm. 
in 2016 to a much broader understanding of the creative industries. Right. Okay. And so after you've gone through this Trojan horse yes, phase Trojan and then you've gone into, yeah. and I guess, working with Arts Victoria transitioning into Creative Victoria, yeah. was there a moment where you looked at the site and said, okay, we've done that temporary timber yeah. palette yeah. kind of arrangement yeah. and we need to put in some more permanent infrastructure? And yeah. how did that change your approach, but then also did you start to get some artists who saw the site differently and then started to engage with you in a new way? Very much, yeah. So, with the 12-month experiment and with a a sense of a success of that experiment or, you know, it was proof of concept, we were given a a proper budget to build something and to staff the site. So, there was both an operational budget and an infrastructure budget. So, there was a, a really major shift in 2016 and... I mean, we like to think about that the design of the infrastructure that's there now and that was there from 2016 as really a response to watching artists work on that site for the year prior, the two years prior. I keep saying a year because we got a, it was a year's contract that just kept getting extended. <laughs> so it was technically meant to be a year, but we were there actually for three before yeah. the upgrade. So proper studio spaces, proper environments, indoor environments were really important. And then what we call this superstructure, which was basically a six by six meter grid, steel grid as a canopy across the site. That was essentially getting power and lighting to every aspect of the 2000 square meter site at a very low cost. Mm -hmm. So we're still on these kind of, we're still at these we're still trying to do everything on kind of quite tight budgets, but trying to cover the site as much as possible to really make every every part of the site able to be used. Mm. So this this superstructure did a number of things. As I said, it, it carried it was a basically carrying cable tray across the site. Mm-hmm. It was also enabling different parts of the site to be used in different ways. And something we've always been really interested in at testing grounds is uh, cross programming. So getting multiple things to happen on the site at any given time. We kind of talk about these moments of intensity where we intentionally kind of push different programming up against each other. So you sort of have these nights which are real parties or real celebrations with multiple things going on. And does that include multiple artists as well? Yeah, so like yeah, okay. multiple groups, groups. Mm. And it's not it's I would argue that it's not it's not a curatorial judgment. It's about trying to sort of push things together that normally wouldn't work together. So it's yeah. not like, oh that will work really well with that. It's actually like, no, no, this site works best when there is a lot going on and there are different things kind of bumping into each other and different groups of people that normally wouldn't go to an event together at the mm. same time. So we've had examples where there's a group of students putting on a show and there's a fringe festival event side by side and then there might be an award ceremony. And, you know, so really kind of these intense moments in the calendar and that's mm. part of the strategy. But it's also because the size of that site and this superstructure really enabled groups to kind of cluster across this grid. So the grid really worked to frame and to sort of delineate space. But it was very much always understood as a kind of a backdrop to activity. So it would very much, our plan was always that ultimately what people were doing and what people were creating within this grid and with, with on this site was, was foregrounded by the grid. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. So you've got this, yeah, this gridded, steel gridded structure, then everyone can, you know, you can definitely say, right, you get portion B and this person has portion D and, you know, 
try to stick within that kind of space but then do you say no, do whatever you want within no, that or it's not about kind of corralling people so much it's more about so the the structure would actually enable frames and so we have this kind of kit of parts that would connect to the structure so it was more about and then these three indoor boxes so different groups would often be working within a with one of these kind of boxes one of these interiors that would then open up onto the grid so it yeah it was more about the grid is more about sort of literally being used to install or hang or frame or yeah very much literally being used to kind of install work often so it's, it's really interesting when you do have something that's quite pared back and quite pared back in terms of we're kind of looking at a really like a steel column with steel beams running between columns, mm. people kind of see what they want to see. So they know what they're coming on site to do. They know what they're trying to achieve. So they think quite creatively about what they can do with these quite raw elements. And that was always the plan as mm. well. And, you know, having PowerPoints everywhere was a really important thing for us. Like back in the, the bad old pallet days, the, mm. the Trojan horse days, you know, we had one PowerPoint which was like – right back in the bar and you know the amount of times there'd be like these cables running it was just this nightmare and so one thing we just really knew is we needed to power to be provisioned across the entire site maximum flexibility and I guess there's just something going on here as well is that we and I guess it's the one thing that's a little bit unusual about what we do in that we we generally design the spaces we operate them and we program them and we don't necessarily think about them in that order. We think about these as almost like layers to what we do on any given day. So the design of these spaces is, I like to think about them as constantly in flux and constantly responding to use. Mm -hmm. The operation of them is something that we don't just kind of hand over to someone else to do. We're really invested in operations. We feel we learned through day-to-day operations of sites. And then programming is responding to both people as they come to propose things, but also to what we learn through operations and, and architecture. So there's this kind of these three streams to what we're doing and in a conventional project they happen in sequence, but for us they're happening together mm. and mm. constantly. Yeah, so it's like a, an ongoing feedback loop. Is exactly. that what you sort of mean? Yeah. Yes. yes wow. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Feedback loop's yeah. a perfect, perfect term. Yeah. yeah. So operations, programming, and, and design, or, or or architecture, or the provisioning of these creative infrastructures are all happening simultaneously. And I think that's amazing that, you know, because you had that caretaker role as well, that you're there yeah. every day and you yeah. can see day by day with all those combinations of people who curatorially might make a lot of sense to be compatible. And then you've got other curation, nights of curation where you've got people who might be more opposed, but, you know, you get to see the results of that. What were some examples of, of great nights where you saw different groups really pushing the space and also seeing some outcomes that you you hadn't foreseen before the actual event took place? Yeah, look, there have been hundreds. There have just been so many interesting events and coming together of different groups. So we've worked really closely with Ari Rainglory, who has been with us at Testing Grounds since 2016 when we launched the new infrastructure, which is kind of the, the testing grounds that people know of now. And he's been responsible for really kind of running the site from a programmatic point of view and curating those events. And I guess my my angle in amongst all this and within the practice more broadly has been really education focused. So 
Some examples of things that have been really special to me have been when students have engaged with the site over a whole semester. And that's happened both at testing grounds and quite a lot here as well at SiteWorks, where you have students that have time with the space and are able to respond in a very site-specific way and able to create interventions and, and actually test and experiment with the built fabric with the space as they're kind of learning about it. Mm. So it's a very hands-on approach to sort of studio-based learning mm. and being able to run classes out of these sites have been has been really important to me as well. And then we'll have great things where like there'll be a showing of student work alongside an artist doing something. So crossing those creative industry fields, I guess, has been really wonderful to a site that sort of equally welcomes design and architecture-based practices alongside maybe performance and theatre-based practices alongside more traditional mm. arts arts practices. Yeah, so that kind of like cross or transdisciplinary approach to a space or approach to a community, I guess, and to bringing community together has been really good. Yeah. And it must be hard to select one or even a couple because they're all so nuanced in what they're exploring. Yeah. You know, some things are quiet, some things are loud, some things take a long time, like you mentioned, and other things, uh, yeah. you know, we want to put it out there just for people to see and, yeah. you know, so that must be, yeah, every single event must have been like one of your children has <laughs> its own little personality while it's in there. There's something about, I guess, the flexibility of testing grounds and going back to that idea of operations, programming and infrastructure mm -hmm. kind of running concurrently, really what underpins all three is, I guess, an attitudinal approach mm -hmm. of always or as much as possible trying to say yes to things, mm -hmm. not being gatekeepers, but being those that try and open doors and say yes and support work. And that really goes back to that, I guess, that initial kind of caretaker model, which was the mechanism for us to be there in the first place. But I guess there's an attitude that underpins all that, which is not about saying no to some things and yes to some things. It's really trying to accommodate as much as possible. So that attitude is why on many occasions we would have multiple things happening on any given night. It wasn't like, oh, you guys would be perfect together. It's like, how do we get as much, how do we get as much happening here as possible? And, mm -hmm. and I guess it also goes to this idea, like we're all, we've all up until very recently, we've always been on these sites in very transitional phases and they've always been, we've always had like a 12 month contract or maybe a two year contract. Mm -hmm. So it's also this idea of, you know, a good time, not a long time. We're not, we're not about sort of a legacy. Mm -hmm. We're actually actually about trying to get squeeze as much juice out of these projects while we've got the opportunity and being very feeling very fortunate about having these opportunities to sort of run these sites and trying to share that with as many people as possible and support our, our networks through these sites. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned as well, like, you know, if you're trying to push boundaries and do as much as you can in as little time as possible, yes. that, you know, especially during the um, Trojan horse phase, you realized, you know, you needed more power and yeah. pe people when they were coming in were sort of pushing you guys saying, you know, we need you to deliver this uh, for us. Were there any other instances later on once you did have your infrastructure sort of sorted out? where you had the creatives really pushing the boundaries of, of what the space could do or what, what you could do as well? No. And in <laughs> fact, we would have loved more risk-taking. One of our key criteria for applications is like, are you taking risks here? Like, are you understanding this site as a place where risks can be taken over and over and above maybe a conventional kind of gallery space or a conventional interior environment? 
are you taking risks? Are you trying something here that you can't do somewhere else? Like we don't, we're not here just to kind of be another gallery space. We're here to provide a place where you can try something that you can't try somewhere else. We are totally fine with your project not working or you trying something and not quite getting there. So if, to be honest, we were often always trying to encourage people to take more risk and I mean, risk can look like lots of things to different people. I guess I, I was always really interested in people doing more with, with this structure. I always secretly hoped it would be wrapped. Mm-hmm. Like I really wanted someone to kind of like Christo and John Claude. Like I really wanted that, but it never happened. But yeah, yeah. So I guess the other thing that happens with these sorts of projects that as much as, as much as we really like to think about projects and the art, well, the, the infrastructure evolving through use, mm-hmm. There is this kind of wonderful, what we say is sort of a dance with entropy where things do start to come to the end of their lives. There's only so many times you can patch that wall and, Mm. you know, stick that thing back together. I like to think about that philosophically, but Mm. there's something about the being intimately involved with buildings and seeing them fall apart through use a little bit that we think about and how to take care and how to fix and how to know when something's gone on long enough. And I should also say, so what's actually happened in the past six months is we have closed testing grounds at One City Road and Mm. it was a bit of a a slow close. We didn't have that big party that we'd wanted to because of COVID and that site is is, as ever it was most of your audience probably are aware that site is the new site for the the extension of the arts center. Mm-hmm. So the art centers and the art center and NGV Contemporary are both kind of moving back for sort of off off um, St Kilda Road and taking those two sites. Mm-hmm. Uh, so really exciting things ahead. So what's that? What that has meant is that we are we were either going to put the infrastructure away, mm-hmm. or we were going to reassess and find a new site. And so we have found a new site with the city of Melbourne and we're going to be moving to Queen Victoria Markets to the car park there. So once again, moving to a site that's got a kind of contested or a semi-uncertain future, it's kind of the city of Melbourne are going through, uh, as everyone knows, this sort of planning around that precinct to the city and that area of the city. So we really once again see our, our job as existing in a place that is going through a transition and almost allowing people to sort of inform its future through experimentation and through the a creative industries kind of lens. So yeah, we are moving. So, and, and I guess with that move comes a kind of, I guess, a careful consideration of what's valuable about testing grounds, what it can do in this new site. Yeah. And I guess that sort of shows the success of testing ground. If you came to the end of it and you realized that you had created an infrastructure and a space that could accept as artists and creatives pushing it as hard as they were comfortable pushing it and that it didn't break. (laughs) It started to, you know, like you say, just because of entropy, it was sort of aging but not, uh, you know, breaking beyond what you wanted it to do. How have you sort of taken that moving towards this new site? You thought that you're then going to be the ones who have to push the boundaries a little bit further to encourage that sort of less safe uh, approach to the for the creatives? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things that are going to be quite interesting about this move. We're going to – we've always really appreciated being a little bit hidden at One City Road. Mm-hmm. We always kind of joke that we're sort of a little bit 
sheltered by the art center. We're just literally behind the art center spire and everyone looks at that spire as this kind of iconic kind of front door to sort of high end arts. And there we are just like a little bit behind being kind of <laughs> cheeky and making a mess and kind of like, you know, having fun, <laughs> sort of sort of like the back of house of the yeah. arts precinct in a way, but we're moving to this site that's going to be really in the public's eye and, you know, a really busy sort of part of that whole market precinct. And I think with that will come more exposure to a general public and we are going to have to really advocate for experimentation, I think, in that space because ultimately we are not – those who use the site, while they could be doing performances for the general public or it could be an audience-based kind of outcome, we are still really trying to advocate for experimentation For you know, just because it's in this kind of environment where the public might – see things or it's much more in a sort of, I guess, a yeah, public environment, we still really want to make sure it's a space for experimentation and a, sp- mm. a space for testing and thinking about things in public. But at the same time, I think also this more public kind of setting will throw up challenges for both us operationally and programmatically, but also for the, our, our sort of our creative communities who use, use it as an infrastructure and there's nothing quite like live feedback from the, yeah. from the public. Yeah, fantastic. City. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it must be fantastic as well with the testing ground, you know, becoming as, as prolific as it was, that you had fantastic local artists doing great work there, but then you had, you know, visiting artists from other places that weren't locals. How did they approach the site where maybe some local artists would thought, well, we have to re- be respectful of the context that we're in and we have to respond to exactly what's going on around us. Was there any creatives that just either ignored it or thought, no, I'm doing my own thing here. I don't need to think about that, which also showed us a new or showed you a, a new appreciation for the site. Because Testing Around was was in that location for as long as it was and you got to see so many artists from both local and yeah, and yeah. from other locations, yeah. did you see a bit of a difference between what the international or uh, non-local artists were putting on in the space versus what the locals were doing? Not, not overly. I mean, I, and to be perfectly honest, I probably – I wasn't totally involved in like a lot of the day-to-day over the past couple of years. We had – there have been a number of festivals that have used it. I think if anything, if I could maybe answer that question a little bit differently and mm. sort of reflect on the difference between an individual practitioner okay. coming in and using the site. So one thing about testing grounds is it's always been free to use. Mm. So we don't charge – Someone will apply to use it and they don't pay anything to use it. It's available to them. Our equipment's available to them. Uh, We've said yes to over 85% of our applications. So it's about high turnover, getting as much out of these sites, giving as much of these sites over to others. We've had over 600 different practitioners, individual practitioners use it for that many different projects since 2016. So just a really, really high turnover. What I guess is interesting is the comparison between individuals coming to test an idea, coming to really use it in the spirit that it was intended for, in contrast with maybe a festival or a larger a larger kind of clustering of program come and use it for a festival-specific site. I think in both situations, it's really proved itself to be very adaptable. for. And I guess I come back to this idea of a backdrop. So we never want to co-opt or take ownership of people's work. It was very much about providing an infrastructure and almost getting out of the way, the operations support 
is there, the infrastructural support there, but ultimately the site is capable of taking on the identity of Fringe Festival when Fringe Festival does a full site takeover, for instance, or the site is capable of kind of supporting an individual practitioner, however sort of small or incidental their work they're experimenting with might be. We're very much able to kind of support them, Mm -hmm. but it's not like a testing ground. It's not like something at testing grounds. It's sort of like I think the infrastructure was able to sort of, yeah, support the smallest thing or the biggest thing and the scale shift there is I guess something that I've been really interested in watching yeah you know so yeah and that was something I think that suffered a little bit in the early days with such a basically a big site there was just not enough there to small things could get lost and Mm -hmm. big things didn't quite have enough room Mm -hmm. originally but with the sort of the superstructure grid and the 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 sort of creative infrastructure that we built in 2016 it was what was really remarkable about it was its ability to hold quite small things and hold very full whole site takeover large festivals yeah no that's i mean i think that's a big consideration that maybe some architects are thinking about since uh, Bilbao, the Guggenheim in Bilbao, where it's, you know, this big structure that's sort of, you know, that's that's almost the piece of art <laughs> and then yeah, art yeah. comes into that. So, yeah. was a huge part of testing ground to sort of sit back oh my God, and yes. just get out of the way, get out of the way completely. Yeah. And operationally yeah. as well. So, the program is, the program and the operations are in, in our mind as a practice, although it's probably not evident, in, mm. it's hard to sort of point to this, but attitudinally the operations and the program are also creative infrastructures mm-hmm. so everything is there to sort of frame and support and basically with that support also kind of clear a path and get out of the way you know mm-hmm. so goes to the attitude and the approach of saying yes to as much as possible goes to having gear that's very like for instance we so we don't have on a very practical level so i can give some really pragmatic examples mm-hmm. we don't have projectors mounted anywhere mm-hmm. but all our projectors are able to be installed with magnets so projectors can be mounted really easily pretty much anywhere across the site mm-hmm. at really quickly so that's just a very pragmatic example because <laughs> maybe i'm talking a little bit like conceptually so there's operational kit there's gear there's people everything is there to kind of say yes make things happen and then allow that event to unfold or that activity to take place allow, allow that artist to try a bunch of different stuff so, with your example of Bilbao, you know, very specific requirements I can imagine about how that building is used and how the interiors operate. We've tried to be as light as possible with those sorts of, I guess, restrictions to use. Yeah. yeah. I mean, thanks for <laughs> yeah comparing me to. <laughs> well, it's. I think it's it's a good thing because it's seems like the way testing ground operates where it's no come in and and make it your own and this is the frame and the canvas on which you can do do some new work and experiment i guess to round this out after all the years of now working with so many creatives and artists what do you think architects could learn from your experience now that we're seeing so many fantastic projects through you know the njv commission where architects and artists are working together more often what do you think is a big consideration in terms of the process of collaboratively working together i think we need to stop thinking about buildings as fixed once the architects done their design job the notion the idea of a handover of a building is and you know a building being complete once it's handed over is really 
not the way the world works. It's not the way we live. And we all know that. We all exist in domestic environments that are constantly in flux. And I think if we could think about our civic spaces, if we could think about our cultural spaces, we could think about places of cultural production and places for artists and places for creative communities as living buildings that change and adapt with use and have the capacity to do so, that would be a wonderful thing. And I feel like buildings should support creative endeavors as opposed to restrict them or prescribe them so that would be essentially how I think about architecture and how I'd like buildings to operate more and I see that in the creative industries you know so much that our spaces are often putting limitation on 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 use I think also there is a um, there's something to be thoughtful about is this idea of things becoming it's like the Swiss army knife, you know, it does everything kind of okay, but it does nothing very well. I think there's a, there is a balance there, but there is balance of, of having things that work well in a range of different ways. And I would come back to this notion of operations and programming being the kind of the brain's trust of buildings and, and, and needing to sort of be thought about from the beginning and, and sort of stitched into the fabric and the life of a building. So it, it evolves well with time, it doesn't sort of degrade with time. Yeah, what else? I thought that was a beautiful one. That was, you know, was a lovely little conclusion. I had a funny moment like halfway through. I'm like... <laughs> no, I thought that was great. Um, but yeah, I think I just wish we could think about buildings and it goes against, to be honest, it goes against the whole capitalist kind of idea, is, doesn't it, that a, mm. a, a building and a, a thing is a commodity. But like I just think if we can embrace our built environment as a living fabric that changes with use and and is informed by use, it just opens up so many more possibilities. It goes to issues of maintenance and, and caretaking and there's, there's a requirement, a much more active investment in the life of the building that's required. But I think, yeah, we've just seen seen so many wonderful examples of that working really well throughout our 10 years or so doing this. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for <laughs> for giving. No, that was amazing. Thank you so much for giving us testing ground over all the years that you were the caretaker and curator and you know everything. Yeah, and well, thank you. I just yeah, we thank Melbourne and we thank the city for the opportunity to do it. it it's been a wild ride and it's been lots of fun and we're really looking forward to the next evolution. Yeah, SiteWorks. Yeah, SiteWorks and then also the um, Vic Markets site is going yeah. to be incredible. So, yeah, we're really looking forward to seeing what you do there and we can't wait to see some more art collaborations and artworks. So, is there anything else that you wanted to mention? Before? Yes, I did actually. So, I just, I did, I totally remembered what I was going to say before. You mentioned the NGV commissions. Yes, so, we have another, we have a third site that we run, which is a quarry in the Otways, which is undergoing rehabilitation. And for the past five years, this really goes to this idea of buildings not thinking beyond the lifespan of a commissioning and a decommissioning and is never never is that so intense as is when it's a pavilion or a very temporary piece of architecture as melbourne's become very familiar with this this type with m pavilion and ngv commissions so for the past five years we have been taking the materials from the ngv commissions in collaboration with ngv they've been decommissioning those pavilions and we've been taking that material to the Otways to this quarry site for future buildings there. And I guess there's just, just to reflect on that in that, you know, once these pavilions are decommissioned, the material still exists, you know, they go out of, they go, they leave the city, these architectures, these pavilions, these extraordinary kind of beautiful installations, 
get pulled apart and live on and have a future. And I think there's also something in that, that we can think beyond the fixed lifespan of architecture. If we can be a little bit more creative about what happens to it, once it's finished, it's kind of point to this idea. And and I guess point to our willingness to kind of think about the value of materials and think about the value of architecture once it's kind of left its glory days at the NGV. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, we've got all of them from the car park on, we've got all of the wow. material, the quarry. Yeah. So we're doing one-to-one builds there with students over the next, over the coming years with this huge material library. Like yeah. I'm talking thousands of linear meters of timber and steel and bricks and yeah, it's really extraordinary material library yeah. there. And can people come and visit it and like, so, yeah, we're building facilities there this year and next. We got a bit stalled with COVID, as is everyone, as, as the stories of everyone. But yeah, so what we're doing is we're building some, we're building basically a very large shed in which we'll house kitchen facilities and studio facilities with camping facilities elsewhere on the site. And then, yeah, we're collecting large volumes of materials there for one-to-one builds with students. So that's the future there. But it's all happening while it's remaining an active quarry. So there's this kind of interesting mechanism there to continue the quarry. So we don't want to lose the quarry license and we want it to keep running as a quarry to change its use to something else is a huge task. So to continue to run it as a quarry and basically see these creative projects as ancillary to its function as a quarry. So, all right. So, yeah, stay tuned. Yeah, yeah, but it's just a sort of funny thing, you know. I feel like saying everyone thinks the material from these architecture commissions just vanishes. It's like, no, 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 it's all still in the it's all still in the system, people. Like, it's just a funny thing. It's like, oh, yeah, it's gone. Here comes the next question. (laughs) No, that's great. Where it can live on and yeah, become something new. Yeah, yeah, right. So, what should people search if they want to find out more about that project? Oh, just um, the project's quarry, it's called. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for giving us your time, <laughs> Nellie. It's been absolutely awesome hearing yeah, about the history of testing grounds, site works, and everything else that's up, you know, coming up soon for you guys. So thank you so much. Thank you. This has been a special episode of Hearing Architecture for the Asia-Pacific Architecture Festival, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you so much to our guest in this episode, Millie Cadlin, for her contribution to the architecture profession and for sharing how co-designing creative spaces with artists, designers, and other creatives can revitalise and engage parts of our cities that are overlooked and underappreciated. If you're looking for another podcast to listen to, the city of Townsville has just released Tropics Talks. That's Tropics with an X. Tropics Talks explores design and the architecture profession in the regional city of Townsville, North Queensland. The podcast talks about local experiences, the careers of practicing architects in the north, and favorite local and international projects. Guests include local professionals Zami Rohan, Mark Kennedy, Hywell Jones, and John Larazabal to understand more about what drives and inspires creative locals to grow Townsville. So if you'd like to have a listen, you can find Tropics Talks on Spotify. Our sponsor Brickworks also produce architecture podcasts hosted by modernist fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or wherever you get your favourite podcasts. 
to learn more about APAF and all the events, presentations and competitions that are running both in person and online, please visit asiapacificarchitecturefestival.com. And if you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio and the Asia Pacific Architecture Festival. The Institute production team was Stacey Rodder, Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. And the APAF production team was Georgia Burks and Jacinta Reedy. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.